This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. everyone. Thanks for joining the conversation today. I'm Erin Straza and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. We're right in the middle of our Never Seen series, and this is a a collection of episodes in which we consider ways that movies are capturing and influencing and shaping our cultural narratives. So what we're doing is we're watching a popular film that either one of us or both of us have never seen, and then we hop on and we talk it all out right here with you. Now, we've talked about Casablanca, we've talked about Mean Girls, we've talked about Singing in the Rain, and last time we talked about The Breakfast Club, we had Wade Bearden and Kevin McLenathan from Seeing and Believing Podcast. They were on and they joined us. And this week we have another film lined up, and it's one that neither one of us have seen. So brace yourselves, people, we're going to dig into this one. Now, Hannah, I I do have a confession for you as we get started this week. please. I, I want to us. say, just between us, don't tell anybody. Now, when we talked about Mean Girls a couple episodes back, we were trying to decide if that was rewatchable for us. And at the time, I was like, nah, I don't think I need to see it again. But I do have to say that after our episode, and then as I was prepping social posts and interacting with people about Mean Girls, I just kept thinking about it. And I was like, I think I want to watch that again. And I have to say, although I rarely, rarely am the person sitting in front of the TV and seeing what's on, I did that just the other day and Mean Girls was on and I turned it on. <laughs> and so I watched it from the midpoint to the end. So I have rewatched Mean Girls. Is it rewatchable? I, I, I actually was kind of glad to see parts of it again because I was finding more humor in it because of some of the interactions. Those actors were very funny in how they delivered some of their lines. So I, I really did enjoy watching that the second time through. Well, halfway, you know, I, I started midpoint to the end. But I just had to I, confess. Yeah, and I guess that that's, um, I guess that's a good example of how you don't always know something's rewatchable until you rewatch it. I guess so. And like your initial instinct or your impression of something actually can change. I think time. that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this week, um, our film that we watched actually had an amazing initial response to mm-hmm. it when it was released in 1981. And interestingly enough, as you and I have been talking um prep for the podcast, even though it had this massive response in 1981, I mean, this film won four Academy Awards, it won a BAFTA, it won awards at Cannes, it won a Golden Globe. It kind of really quick, 
likely fell by the wayside. Um, so I think that's really fascinating. And I want to talk about this, maybe why that happened and whether it deserves the heights that it got initially and what role, uh, how we should approach it today. So the film that we watched this week um, is Chariots of Fire. Now, I had never seen Chariots of Fire, even though I think I don't, I mean, like I've known the, the main score and probably listeners, if you Google it, you'll hear it. You're like, oh yeah, I've heard that. You everywhere. know that music. Bum, yes. Bum, 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 <laughs> bum, bum, bum. You know, so we have this score that's kind of stayed in our popular um, consciousness, but I really had never seen any clips of the movie or even lines of the movie, um, which is surprising given the response that it got at its initial release. I had seen the the opening scene where and and the ending. They kind of bookend the film with this opening scene of runners on the beach um, with the music. And so I've seen that and I wondered if I had seen bits and pieces of the movie, but what I've decided is I have just seen the beach scene and that is it. And so I, I've locked that into my brain, like the runners with the music and the beach. And then that's really all I knew about this movie before uh, watching it. And as, and as it unfolded, I was like, oh no, I have never seen this. And I think because it has such a good story rooted in history, um, it, it's since it's biographical, I think it's like the details were there because I had read about it. And so I knew where the movie was going, but I had no idea how those scenes would come together and how the story would play out as a film. I had a very similar experience because for those of you who may not know, um, the story of Chariots of Fire is set in the 1920s in England, and it centers around um, two runners and really a running team that went to the Olympics in France and competed um, for the UK. But one of those runners was Eric Little, who was a missionary to China. Um, and I think maybe I knew Eric Little. So I've heard mm -hmm. of his story. I've maybe even read biographical sketches of him and had this sense of, oh yeah, I know Eric Little. And because of that knowledge, I didn't realize that, no, you've never seen any part of the fire. <laughs> so I had this strange overlap of knowledge where I knew, like you said, the historical context of the film, but not the actual plot or the scenes of the film. So maybe you are listening now and you're like, oh, yeah. I don't know it either, even though I have this strange sense that I do. Um, i just give you a quick summary of Chariots of Fire. As I said, it's set in the 1920s in England, and it has this undercurrent of the question of class. And the storyline focuses on two young runners, um, Harold Abrams, who is Jewish and has this drive to run and to win, to prove himself within um basically the British class system. He's something of an outsider, even though he goes to their schools and he's successful um, in racing. And, and people respect him for his athletic prowess, but there's always this kind of question hanging in the air because he's Jewish. And it's paralleled by the story of Eric Little, who um, is of Scottish descent. He's actually 
uh, born to missionary parents in China and he comes back to the UK and is in um, school and doing mission work there and just has this natural ability to run. And he is counseled both by his family and mentors to go with it, see where this takes you and to run for the glory of God. And so you see these parallel storylines that eventually cross as um, Little and Abrams race against each other, eventually as they become teammates and they're competing um, in the Olympics in France. And underneath all of this is the question of why do you run? What drives you? What makes you better? Um, and so it's really an interesting storyline. It's historical. It's, it's you know, factual. Um, and that adds a layer to it as well. Um, but I did find that I walked away from the movie like, oh, yeah, I knew none of that, <laughs> even though I felt like I had a grasp on Little's story. I had a grasp on Little Story. And then when they brought in Harold Abrams, I was like, who? Wait a minute. I didn't know there was going to be another runner guy that they were talking about. So I, I had no idea where this movie was going. And maybe this will be good for um, gut reactions, Hannah. My gut reaction initially was, this movie's so quiet. Did you think it was so it quiet? Was. It, was it was so quiet and calm, calm and and slow. I will um, admit to dozing and then realizing I needed snacks to keep myself going. And I I was surprised by how different a competitive sport film this was compared to the ones that I've seen in the last 10 years, where they are pretty intense um, in terms of how they portray competition and sports and athleticism. This one um, is really digging deeper into almost the the motive and the psyche of the competitor, which um, it, it, it was interesting. It wasn't really focusing primarily on that glory side of it, although that is touched on. Um, but yeah, my gut was, wow, this is really a quiet film. Really quiet. <laughs> Which is so funny because it's about racing. Right? I but I felt the same way. I felt like it was attempting almost an epic or a majestic pace. Mm-hmm. And so even that opening score of bum, 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 bum. That's mm-hmm. what, like, that's the speed of the whole film. It really it, is. Everybody is running in slow motion. All the time. <laughs> Which I run and I run in slow motion because I'm so slow, but it looks nothing like that. And really, I, I can't imagine um, the runners that I know it's not quite like that. So in that way, I'm like, I don't understand if this is quite a good depiction of Mm -hmm. how runners interact and behave. It's not all that majestic. I mean, there are times that it's beautiful. Like when we've run in the mountains of Colorado, it's like, oh, wow, this is amazing scenery. But usually it's a little bit livelier. Or, or you're, you know, really sucking air. <laughs> you're, well, the, you're wanting to stop. <laughs> of course, the other angle on this is the class structure. So mm-hmm. it was running within the elite classes of sure. 
And so there was this kind of reservedness and this. They were more dignified in the running. Dignity. And there was even one scene that I just found hilarious where um, the head of school is kind of chiding Abrams for having a professional coach to help him become better. And the head of school is like, we don't do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like as if their success can't be gritty. Right. Focus. It has to be effortless. It has to be just we. It's all natural. You just go and do it. So Mm -hmm. there definitely was this mirror in the pacing and in the filming to this kind of upper class elite effortlessness. There, it's it wasn't grunt work, right? It's like they don't sweat. The working. (laughs) They don't get dirty. They don't sweat. They just go run, and they're fast. And I also (laughs) found because it was set in spaces like. Um, college, a college at Cambridge, Keys College at Cambridge. Um, and then on this running team, all of the characters were often dressed similarly, like mm-hmm. in, in uniforms or in robes. And there was almost this kind of amalgamation of all the characters where they <laughs> kind really of blended was. into each other. And I found myself like sitting there like, I don't know who's who. Like, I was it took giggling me a long time yes. to follow. Oh wait, you're little. Okay, you're Abrams, and I can tell because you have curly dark hair, and everybody oh has gosh. blonde hair. And, yeah. and so it was this kind of strange, and, and maybe that was part of the director's intent. Just kind maybe of so. mass where you don't stand out and you're not different. Um, but I did struggle a little bit with following the storyline and knowing Mm -hmm. who is who. And so when I realized how many awards it had won, I was just flabbergasted. I'm kind of shocked by that, Hannah, because I I get it in terms of the, um, the iconic music with the competition and that it's a biography. I get that this is why this film is important or it stood out. I'm really surprised that it won so many awards because I don't know if seeing it on a big screen, if that would have made a difference. But like I said, it was so quiet and so slow. And I didn't find the dialogue especially memorable. This isn't a quotable movie at all. No. So mm-hmm. it's just surprising There's to me. a lot of strange looks and gazing yeah. off into the distance. <laughs> The the process of running, I thought they gave a lot of attention to that. Um, there's a scene, um, I think this is the final race at the Olympics, where they didn't use starting blocks for their races. And so they gave them these little tiny shovels to create their own little divots in the, the, cinder, tra- in the cinder track. And they spent a lot of time watching the runners do that. I was like, this is taking forever. And so I don't know at the time, was that um, just a different way of showing the story to show that there are details? It was very detail focused, showing the littlest things of the, the breeze and the digging in the dirt and the running. I don't know. But very surprising to me that it won so many awards. And um, But people seem to know it. So well, I guess between the, the thing. I felt like it assumed a lot on the viewer. Mm, so okay. those trowels, those little shovels yes. showed uh-huh. up really early on in the movie. 
And I was very nervous the whole time because they were very sharp and pointed. They were. What are they doing with those? And I'm like, you cannot run with a pointed sharp object. And you're Don't carrying it around with you and you're putting it in your bag and you're running down the field. And I felt like after the one of the final scenes where they showed them using the trowels to dig out the starting divots, I was like, Oh, well, why didn't you just say so? I like, don't know. Was I supposed to know that the whole time yeah. you were carrying this around? I had was no there idea. Some mystery in that <laughs> that you were holding off explaining what the, was that intentional, or were you just assuming that I would know what that was for this whole time? So <laughs> I felt like that happened over and over again, where there was a lot of assumption that the audience understood certain things. Now, would you say that this film is rewatchable? Well, I feel like I have to rewatch it because I have so to that go back and to figure pull. everything out. <laughs> to put it all back together. I don't know if I can bring myself to rewatch it, Hannah. I, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna put this so far on all the movies we've talked about. This is this is toward the bottom for me. Like, oh, I don't think I need to watch this again. Even I'm not if sure. I have good snacks. I would need some really good snacks. Maybe some a whole lot of caffeine. I don't know. But or or maybe in a group, like if we we're preparing for a big race, like maybe I'll get Mike with me and and he'll want to watch it or something. But yeah, it, it's not it's not up there. I, I there are things I liked. There were I, I think what I'm saying is that I've walked away from this movie with interesting insights and um, almost like life lesson sort of things. But I don't know if I, f- I want to rewatch it to go through the quietness and the drawn out nature of the scenes to, to rehash it. But there were good things in it. I think that may be why it won the awards is because mm-hmm. it really does have an excellent message and things that make you think of like, ooh, which type of a runner, competitor um, person am I? How do I relate to either Eric or Harold in my approach to the things that I'm passionate about? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think for me, it was rewatchable in this way. Oh, hey, you need to watch this movie. I'll watch it with you. So Mm -hmm. I would watch it again if there were a person that I was trying to convince to watch it. And I think I may watch it with my kids again at some point because I would like them to see it. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think, like you said, there are some very significant ideas and questions being presented. I think historically it's interesting. I liked the settings and the costuming. Mm -hmm. Um, And it even won an Academy Award for costuming. So there's enough to credit it. There's enough to say this is a valuable movie and it's worth your time. But I don't know that it's worth my time to watch it again Mm -hmm. for myself. It might be Mm -hmm. worth it to suggest it to another person and to encourage them to watch it. And if that means watching it with them, yeah, I'd watch it again. Um, But it, like you said, it is a little bit low which again is so ironic because it's right. and maybe there's this massive <laughs> metaphor that we're all, we're both missing maybe so maybe, maybe <laughs> these like, people are so fast and yet they're right. going to have a slow movie about them right maybe there's something that we are just not getting because we're not film critics 
But maybe from so. <laughs> a lay viewer standpoint, it is a bit slow. And I would definitely want to show it to my kids for the questions, but not for the art necessarily. The other thing I thought about it, why it may not be as rewatchable, is it felt really dated. Um, the music felt really dated, interestingly, because it was released in 1981. So it's got this kind of techno kind of yes it was very strange I, I was thrown off by that because I either wanted it to be music that seemed fitting for 1924 which they had some of that they did but yeah that electronica stuff it was it was right. strange so in there it featured a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan which was really fun I like that they used a lot of the songs from those light comic operas but then just as you're getting used to that, the next scene, the, the background will be some kind of electronica. And, and so you have this like weird time warp. It really and, was. And, and maybe that made sense in 1981. And maybe, maybe for the viewers then, it was like, oh, this movie's so up to date. So contemporary. Right. And then now we look at it but like, what's going on there? This many years later, it just didn't last. But, but interestingly, like we've said, I think the ideas and the history of it is going to give it staying power um, so that people will continue to watch it because of that, maybe despite these other things. But I was really impressed by the central question of what drives your success, what drives your competition. Um, you had these two characters that really were being paralleled through the movie. And I'll be honest, the parallel sometimes confused me because I wasn't sure who to watch. Didn't know who was the main character. You had two main characters, which I think that was the point where you had the story of parallel runners, but it also made it hard to know who was the main guy. Um, so the question throughout the whole movie is what is driving you? What is causing you to run? And for Harold Abrams, he was running to overcome prejudice, to prove himself in this space. And so you see this deep-seated angst and fear of failure because what if he doesn't win? Is that going to suggest that he's meaningless and that he can't succeed? And you know everything everybody said about him and his Jewishness is true versus Eric Little, who is running for the glory of God. And there is that famous line in the movie, this is when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And so he's running out of this just joy and desire to win for the glory of God and to celebrate the giftedness that God has given him. And he's an outsider in many ways too. He's not part of the elite class. He was born mm -hmm. in Asia. He is you know, heading back to Asia as a missionary, he's seen as somewhat of an odd religious outsider because he won't run on Sundays. And so you have two outsiders who are grappling with the same question about running and why they run and coming to profoundly different answers. I'm looking at these two runners from the perspective of being privy to the running community. So I I run, but I'm not serious. My husband, though, he runs and he, tr 
trains, he has a, has a coach, he competes and it's, we've never tracked this down, but he, in many races could be considered sub elite for his age and for his time. So he, he gets some special treatments at races. And so we get kind of on the inside track where he's rubbing shoulders with these elite runners. And so we know a lot of runners who would be competing on this level and who have to train and a training is different now, obviously, but we talk about these things with how do you approach your running? Is it that you love it and there's this joy? So you're more like Eric, like it's just your favorite thing to do and you just want to push yourself and see what can happen. Or are you more driven and serious and intense like Harold? I would say that the bulk of the elite runners who I have gotten to know are much more like Harold rather than Eric. So I think Eric is um, special, meaning that it's his unique combination of upbringing and personality and talent. And then it comes out in this joy of running, but that's not common. And I, I think it's wonderful and I love seeing it because it's so fascinating, but I also have this little tinge of, of fear. Like, I don't want to hold that up. Like, Oh, when you're really following God and you are a runner, then you will be like Eric you'll throw your head back with this joy at the end of running so hard. It, I, I think that that could be a little bit of a um, kind of like a, a misapplication of this lesson. Whereas Harold being intense, he did seem like he was a little bit more distraught. I don't know if that was his personality along with where he was in where, where he was in his faith. I'm not sure, but I think that there can be this um, erroneous distinction there that your goal would be run, run like Eric and approach your running like Eric. Well, not being a runner. I, I have no <laughs> to offer about the actual process of running. But what I was seeing as I was watching it is whether something is chasing you mm -hmm. or whether something is drawing you. And I know in my own work, that is a major question for me all the mm. time. Oh, yeah. Um, I've yeah. been pursued and dogged. And so I'm running for my life and panic and the need for security and safety is pushing me forward to success. And all of my commitment and my hard work is just to keep myself safe from this thing that's on my heels. Mm -hmm. Or... Am I running towards something? Is there something out in front of me that is calling me like the voice of God to greatness yeah. and to be better and to run faster because the vocation or the calling of God is drawing me forward into flourishing? And so as <laughs> I watched it as a non-runner, um, I couldn't really judge whether you know, what the best way to engage running is. But as a person wrestling with my own work, I could definitely see myself often falling into Abram's situation where this feeling of needing to prove yourself, of, of needing to show your greatness, but also yeah. feeling distraught by it mm -hmm. and also feeling the weight of it and feeling like, well, if I fail, then it's on me. And what was interesting too for little, um, 
he didn't fail, which I could see that as being, like you said, this false narrative. Like it would have been nice if he had failed. We had seen him lose. Right. Um, Yeah. What would that be like? Yes. But (laughs) he said, you know, failure is not an issue for him. Like not winning did not have the same consequences for him as it had for Abrams. Abrams had to win. Mm-hmm. Little had to run. Yes. So much yep. so that Little was willing to not run on a Sunday. He was willing to give up even being in a race so that he could um, stand by his religious convictions. And so I think that is another angle of it for me that I walked away with was is the goal to win or is the goal to run? Yeah, almost like is your is your heart set on some accomplishment or is it set on I love this process and I love to be in it. And uh, I think, especially in the writing realm, these are the conversations I have with writers who are just getting started. And there's always that question of, oh, I want this end result. And it's like, okay, but do you love the writing? Do you love doing it? And is there any joy in that? Or are you just driven by the end goal of something? And I think everybody's work, you could feel that way. Um, Do you love what you are doing? And not that every job has to be that, but is there something about it where you feel like you are putting your gifts and your talents to work where they are they are being used and and put forth in a way that's not um, burdensome, like making it worse almost. Um, it, it makes it, like you were saying, it's almost like it clamps down on um, any sort of enjoyment or satisfaction of what you're actually doing. Mm. Yeah, and in that sense, I felt like the movie was deeply and profoundly Christian, um, that it portrayed an understanding of vocation that even many of us within the church don't understand. Um, I felt like it gave a visual, you know, a visual picture of what it means to be pursuing the calling of God in your life. Um, to doing it with excellence, to doing it with joy, um, but not being weighed down by the duty of it. And it really struck me how well this movie portrayed a fundamental Christian truth without being preachy. Now, it's got a lot of religious overtones. It has a lot of scripture in it. It has a very visible central character who's taking a stand based on his Christian faith and who comes from a missionary setting, but I didn't get the sense that it was preachy um, as opposed to maybe a lot of movies emerging from um, evangelical spaces today where you have this category of the quote unquote Christian movie um, that is trying so hard to make a point that they end up subverting themselves. And I also couldn't help but think of Little's character and this kind of approach to vocation and calling and work, as opposed to the way we kind of fixate on contemporary sports figures who might be Christians. I don't know, maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe like Tim Tebow or where it's almost like 
their success is essential to the Christian faith rather than embodying a Christian work ethic and embodying a Christian vocation. It's almost as if it's the same approach Abrams was taking where I must win. I must be successful in order to validate my Christian faith. I think that's what it is. We want we want our faith to be proven true because we get the success. Almost like, oh, run this formula or, you know, live by this formula and then all the good things will happen to you. It's that prosperity gospel thing. Whereas really little even though he was winning, and it's and they showed that it's not like it was driven by the wind, and um, I found that to be really refreshing in terms of a sports movie. I'd mentioned that earlier that this is so different from the sports movies that have come out as of late because there is success, and yet there's so much more about how are you living your life and your your sport, whatever that is, whatever the thing is that you are working at or competing in, that's part of your life and and how you live, your character is going to dictate all sorts of things. And and I appreciated that it made it bigger than just, oh, get the win on the field or on the track. I really liked that a lot. Right. Because the crisis point for Little was not whether he won his final race at the Olympics. It was whether he was going to cave to the pressure of the nobility who was telling him, no, go ahead. You can run on Sunday. You need to do this for your country. It's wrong of you not to run on Sunday because you owe a debt to your nation. And he was faced with this pressure of saying, you need to be loyal. You need to have character. You need to stand up and do your duty. And he had to choose who he would follow. And that was fascinating because for him, that was the crisis point. Um, And the answer to that question was more important than even the final race that you see on the screen. And maybe this is why a film that has so much uh, with faith, like you said, there are faith themes and scripture and all of these things about how does your faith play out with your work? it was so heavy and yet it won all these awards. And so I find that fascinating and a really good, I don't know, almost like a good measure of um, a film that is portraying our faith in a real and, and positive and helpful way that this film could still win all of these awards by people who are not Christians. So I I feel like that's very telling. And uh, you had mentioned it's very different from the the Christian films that we're seeing today, because those would never be held up as award winners. And so in some ways, it's like, oh, we need to take a little bit of a check and say, are these, what, what message are we trying to deliver? And is it is it achieving the end goal that we have in mind for drawing people to these deeper um, thoughts and, and concerns of faith and how it plays in our lives? Yes, I think perhaps unintentionally we answered the question that we opened with. Um, mm. Why did this film receive so many awards when you sit down and watch it and it does feel a little bit slow and it does feel a little bit confusing? And I think maybe 
the beauty of the truth that it it holds is life and health and goodness to people who are longing for that. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, I wonder how our testimony to the world or an apologetic for the Christian faith would change if these were the kinds of movies that we were producing um, mm-hmm. that draw people toward goodness and beauty rather than hound them to it. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love that. Well, I think that is a really good note to wrap up this episode on. Um, Well, we will put a whole bunch of things in the show notes for you. Um, We'd love to hear your thoughts, all you listeners out there. We'd love to hear what you think about this film. Um, Be sure to catch up on all the other episodes in the Never Seen series. I'll make sure all those are linked there for you so you can watch them and and join the conversation. And we'd love to hear from you. So um, Hannah, do we have a question of of the day for this episode? We do. What is your favorite film that you feel like embodies the Christian message without being explicit? So we talked a lot about how Chariots of Fire does have all of this uh, Christian overtone, but that the thing that made it so beautiful to people is that it showed the truth. Um, rather than telling the truth. So what is your favorite film that you believe shows the truth of the Christian faith and doesn't just yell it at people? And you can join us on Twitter. Um, We're at PersuasionCAPC. Tell us uh, your thoughts there. You can also catch up with us on Instagram. And if you're a member of the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum, of course, we always love to talk about things there. We want to say thanks to Jonathan Clausen. He produces Persuasion and all the other shows in the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can give them a listen at ChristandPopCulture.com or you can search for them in iTunes. And while you're at iTunes, we would love your ratings and reviews. Let us know what you think and help us to pop up a little bit higher in those search strains for new listeners. We thank all of you for listening to Persuasion and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.